Good afternoon, everyone. Welcome to the Sunday, December 15th episode of Poets and Muses. We chat with poets about their inspirations. I'm your host, Imogen A-Rate. You can follow us at poetsandmuses.com or via social media on Instagram, Twitter, as well as SoundCloud under Poets and Muses. You can also subscribe to our weekly newsletter either at poetsandmuses.com or at the upper right-hand side of the Poets and Muses SoundCloud page. With us today is Kenneth McNeil II, with whom I will be discussing his poem, In My Home, and my poem, Crayons. Before we do that, however, I am going to go over all the poetry events taking place in the Valley during the week of December 16th. On Tuesday, December 17th, from 6 to 8 p.m., Connect and Heal will be hosting its weekly poetry writing workshop in room 101 of the Chandler Community Center, which is at 125 East Commonwealth Avenue in Chandler. On Wednesday, December 18th, from 5 to 10 p.m., Walt Richardson II will be hosting his weekly Walk-In Wednesdays Open Mic Night at the Tempe Center for the Arts at 700 West Rio Salado Parkway in Tempe. Again, this is a two-parter. From 5 to 6, youth and high schoolers will be performing. From 6 to 10, all other performers will go on. Signing up for the first part starts at 4.45. Signing up for the second part starts at 5 p.m. From 6.30 to 9 p.m., Equality Arizona will be hosting this month's Queer Poetry Salon with Open Mic for the LGBTQIA community, featuring Piper J. Daniels and Sarah Viren. This will be taking place at 949 South Maple Avenue in Tempe. You can RSVP for the event at tanner at equalityarizona.org. That's tanner, T-A-N-N-E-R, at equalityarizona.org, all spelled out. Wednesday is also the last day to sign up for this month's Pocket to Me at Palabras Bilingual Bookstore. You can sign up to participate in the event at info at palabrasbookstore.com. Again, that's info at palabrasbookstore.com. That's P-A-L-A-B-R-A-S bookstore.com. On Thursday, December 19th, from 6 to 9 p.m., Fatso's Pizza will be hosting its weekly open mic night at 3131 East Thunderbird Road in Phoenix. From 7.30 to 9 p.m., District 4 Poetry will be hosting its monthly poetry open mic at Jarrett's Coffee, Tea, and Gallery at 154 West Main Street in Mesa. Signing up to get on the mic starts at 7 p.m. From 8 to 11 p.m., Quentin Oni will be hosting his weekly open mic at Jobot Coffee and Bar, which is at 333 East Roosevelt Street in Phoenix. Signing up to get on the mic starts at 7 p.m. From 9.45, Atlas St. Cloud will be hosting his weekly poetry writing workshop at the Welcome Diner at 929 East Pierce Street in Phoenix. On Saturday, December 21st, from 9.30 to 12 p.m., the East Valley Poets will be hosting its monthly short program and open reading at the Tempe Pile Center at 655 East Southern Avenue in Tempe. From 6.30 to 9 p.m., Pocket to Me will be taking place at Palabras Bilingual Bookstore at 1738 East McDowell Road in Phoenix. Again, the last day to sign up for that is on Wednesday of this week. 
From 8 to 11 p.m., Athena Huber will be hosting her mental health awareness through poetry reading and fundraiser. This will be taking place on Facebook. The URL for that is facebook.com forward slash events forward slash four 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 five nine nine four eight nine five nine two six eight four. Again, that's facebook.com forward slash events forward slash four 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 five nine nine four eight nine five nine two six eight four. And now, welcome to our poet guest of the week, Kenneth McNeil II. Hi, Kenneth. Thank you very much for coming on to Poets and Muses. Thank you for having me. Oh my goodness, this is. <laughs> <laughs> I'm so glad you're so uh, enthusiastic about it. It's great. I'm, this is all smiles and stuff. Awesome. Where we're recording is one of my favorite places ever. This is an awesome place. I have to mm -hmm. say, I'm I'm so glad that this place exists. Honestly, it's so funny because this place and I have a history. So I like every adult have these things I like to call mind goblins. Ah, so wait, hang on one second. Just let me let them know we're in the library. So one time was coming and I had just checked out a book and I wanted to read it. Mm-hmm. But I got so caught up in myself mm -hmm. that I had to like pick the perfect spot to like sit and read. <laughs> I went up and down this place five times. Oh my god. Because I couldn't sit on the second floor because there was like enough spread out tables, but like there were too many people for my sake. Yeah, there's and so a lot I went of people here. Up and down and up and down. And then I left and I went to Giant Coffee. Okay. And then I walked in there thinking it was gonna be quieter, but it wasn't. <laughs> but I had the horrible moment because then the lady said something to me. So then I felt that I had to buy something to establish that I'm here for a reason, uh, even though I could have totally gone and walked out. Yeah, you could have. So then I came back and I went up and down this place, all levels, two more times. And then on the final time, the guy that was sitting in the spot that I wanted on the very top floor <laughs> was getting on the elevator as I was coming off. <laughs> so I like dashed to that spot. Nice. And... It was so funny because then somebody else came and sat near me and I had to resist the urge to get up and walk away. I couldn't stop myself because like my mind goblins were like, you have to find the perfect spot. Right, you have right, to. right. And, well, sometimes it just mm -hmm. gets to us, right? It because does. we just feel like yeah. a large personal space sometimes in mm -hmm. and, and a place like this that's a favor to many people, especially yeah. when it's hot outside. Oh, absolutely. It's really difficult Yeah, it was like summertime when this happened. So oh, it yeah. totally made sense. And in my rational side, like part of my brain, I was like, yeah. It's a public space. People are going to be near me. That's right, like right, what right. libraries are. But just a big enough part of my brain was just like, no, you have to be completely <laughs> alone. Then I think the following day I had gone to therapy and I told my therapist about that. Not in so many words, but she was like, dude, nobody cares. Like, you're the oh. only person that cares. Not in the sense of negative, nobody cares, but she's like, the only person that's freaking out about this is you. Everybody else is just living their life, and you should just live your life. It's okay. Right. You're not mm -hmm. hurting anyone by yeah. choosing your preferred right. option. Like right. You cho like, okay. you chose to have this sequence of events. You right, chose right, to right. cause yourself the anxiety. Right, you right. chose to like buy something at the coffee shop even though you didn't need to do that <laughs> none of these things are things you had to do but you chose them right, <laughs> thinking that right. everybody else cared right. about your actions when nobody cared about yeah, your actions yeah, yeah. i have to like remind myself when i do things like that i'm just like nobody 
I think that comes in part with our conditioning in life, uh-huh. right? Because sometimes we are taught that whatever you do, you affect so much of everybody else around yeah, you that you basically absolutely. are conditioned to think of all the domino effects, when it, whereas right. it doesn't necessarily have to take effect. Right, exactly. My usual first question is, tell us a little bit about yourself, but you did already. So if you, I if encapsulated you... who I am as a person in one yeah. story. On the outside, <laughs> as much as I smile, <laughs> I'm probably anxious about a lot of things. Yeah. Um, but my name is Kenneth, pen name pending. Maybe we'll open one up. Yeah. We'll see. Maybe it'll uh, become pen name. <laughs> you know what? That might be worth something. I'll put that. I'll write that down. <laughs> Thank you. Um, it'll kind of be one of those things, I think, as I get more comfortable with poetry, we'll kind of revisit but as I was yeah. telling you before, it's like, I think that just being called my name, that's who I am. Right. right. And my poetry, my art is who I am as a person. Right. So I guess we could just get into it. Yeah, yeah. If you can read it and then we can talk about it, I have a question for you. Oh, so, uh, you want to start with the question or you ask me the question? Um, yeah, let me ask you the question, yeah. actually. Because you did perform it during a contest. Was that the first time? That was the first time I've ever performed that poem. Okay, how did you feel being judged? I tried to block that part out. So it's one of those things where I remember at first feeling really bad. Mm-hmm. You know, that self-silencing mm-hmm. of like, do I have the right to say this? Mm-hmm. Do I have the right to perform this? Mm-hmm. Especially getting, you know, the reactions out of it. And then being judged for it and getting a good score for it, like, it made me feel kind of worse. Where I was just like, oh my goodness, it was such a weird experience because Mm. I still struggle with this poem. It was just one of those things where after performing it, I, for a couple of weeks, was like, I'm never performing this poem ever again. Mm. because I struggled with it and because I got such good feedback on it mm. and my coach Susan she's amazing she was like I'm so proud of you and well she's just proud of me in general and she's yeah. wonderful I love her she's the founder of the Arizona Masters of Poetry who goes out and coach high school students mm-hmm. is that how you met yeah I actually wasn't in high school but we met because they were doing it at first Friday sometime last year and I was walking past it and I asked hey how do I get into like doing this because it's something that I can do so they were like well you know with first Friday it's a sign up thing but they do have open mics if you talk to this lady over there and she pointed out Susan so I just started talking with Susan and then ever since then it was just one of those things where I performed my first poem with her and then it's been one of those things where she's kind of been my coach about it in a whole sense she's just so supportive and so awesome and such a great person and all the poets in the city are so supportive and so awesome yes because i was so shy about the fact that i did mm-hmm. spoken word poetry because mm-hmm. i'm like people might get ideas of what they think it is and mm-hmm. it's not that but i actually found out that a lot of people are like more interested in at least viewing it than i ever thought so mm-hmm. i've brought friends and i've had friends that have started writing poetry and stuff great. like that yeah it's really great and such a supportive community so that's how I started doing it. Yeah, and that's what I feel as well, especially mm-hmm. the open mic scene. It's yeah. very, very supportive, and you can bring all your pain poetry there. And uh-huh. that's what I've done a lot of. Slams are less comfortable for me personally because I don't want to do as much performance poetry. And yeah. also because certain things, like you said, I don't want it to be judged. 
Yeah. I want people to hear, yeah. but I don't want it to be given a numerical score. I think that was the tough part of like, this is the value of your poem in this yeah. setting at this moment. And I think that also made me kind of weird because it was so deep to me where it's right. just like, okay, now I performed it and everything's cool. I got it out and, you know, good reception, all that stuff. Right. But then like, here's this value of it right now. Yeah. And so, like yeah, that was weird. <laughs> <laughs> At the end of the day, sometimes as artists the truth is like sometimes it feels like we capitalize off of our trauma and our pain i think there is some aspect to it at the same time in the open mic mm -hmm. setting i feel like yeah. at least people are not saying and this is explicitly what i think of your yeah and a lot of the times these judges are just people off the street very random yeah so it's almost like the literal version of social media where people yeah. are behind a screen but this is people in front of you, random strangers judging your mm -hmm. personal experience. And maybe that was part of the issue. Maybe if I had performed it first at an open mic and just got it out there, mm -hmm. maybe I would have felt better about it performing it for a competition because that first poem I did was something that I've read tons and tons and tons of times. Right. Yeah, right. so I was like, I was comfortable with it. It's like, hey, yeah, this is a poem. I wrote it. I think I did very well and right. Right. all that stuff. But this one is like, this is it right yeah. here. So go ahead if you want to. So the poem is called In My Home. I am a product of my home. And in that home, I became what they taught me to be. I learned that I was too much, too loud, too rebellious, too much of myself. I learned to be hard on myself, that I was an infection. I burned myself with the idea of perfection and it weighed down on me, like the pressure from my father who would crush me under his might when I would act defiant. What he saw in my eyes when I was eight, I'll never know. But he felt the need to break me, and I learned that I deserved to be broken. I learned not to speak. As to express distress was to remind that I was a major source of my mother's stress, and she stripped my voice of its power. My words would go hollow, because how dare I say that I'm hurt when I am the problem. I learned to find solace in Sunday services. Not because I felt the spirit of the Lord coming on, but because the weight of the Bible was heavy enough to force my father to tuck his arm. And my mother's tongue, as sharp as a dagger's tip, was always dulled when her lips spoke hallelujah. Yet at my home, in my home, the Holy Ghost wasn't there. But if you listen closely, you can hear the footsteps of the boy, the boy who learned to be broken. And being broken is fine, as long as you are silent. Thank you. Performing it is so interesting because there are sometimes that I will throw in a line just because the way that I'm speaking and the flow kind of works out. And then I'll just change a couple things if I feel like they make more sense or something like that. Right, so, right. Like, I feel like literature, period, but especially poetry, especially spoken word, they're living things. Yeah. And they change every time you edit it or perform it. Yeah, so. definitely, definitely. One performance is not always the same as the next one. It's no, not always the same no. as the next one. So, and then it also makes it unique. And like you yeah. said, like you're just kind of feeling the energy of the place and yeah. kind of building off of that. And I think it gives like me a little bit more freedom because in high school I was in theater and then I was in a band once in high school and I did music. I still play a couple of instruments here and there, but it's like, this is what it is and it's going to be this every single time. Right. And what I find when I write poetry, when I perform poetry, I have 
so much freedom mm-hmm. that there are some lines that I'll write down mm-hmm. that when I perform them, I skip at one show, mm-hmm. but then the next one, just the energy of the place and the way my cadence is and everything, yeah. I'm able to add it in there. And right, so it, right, right. it gives me that freedom. And so it's kind of like sometimes my poems feel more like guidelines than they are like hard scripts. Yeah, yeah. And that makes sense. And I feel like it's also sort of like the difference between traditional performance expectations mm-hmm. and sort of more modern or like classical music as opposed to jazz. Yeah. Something like that. Yeah. There's more freedom and more improvisation involved. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So what you're telling me is poetry is jazz. It's kind of jazz. There, yeah. yeah. We heard it here first, everybody. Poetry <laughs> is jazz. It can be jazz. Poetry can be jazz. Yeah. yeah. That's one of the reasons why I do this show is because I want to showcase the variety of poetry that uh-huh. you know different people can bring, the range yeah. of it. It's amazing to just see that you're not limited by what a school or any school is teaching yeah. you that this must be poetry. It's mm-hmm. more about how you choose to express yourself. Very much so. Very yeah. much so. Going back to you, how did you come to poetry? I've always sort of been interested in it, but I never knew how to find it. I struggle a lot with silencing myself as a person. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And a lot of that, you know, and you hear the poem, I will say this is a disclaimer and I don't need a disclaimer this, but I do love my parents and we have a fantastic relationship, mm-hmm. but that doesn't change the fact that there were decisions made and ways of dealing with me Mm -hmm. that resulted in things like that poem. Mm -hmm. I think so often myself growing up and then just children in general are silenced because Mm -hmm. they're children and you know you don't have a right to feel that way and you don't actually understand what's going on and all this other stuff and so I'm always very afraid to speak out and to express myself in words Mm. to the point where for the longest time I would actually say and still sometimes to this day it's like I don't particularly like to talk it's just the most effective way of communication right right. but now that I'm like writing more and I'm like you know saying that my words have value to myself That's the big part of the reason why I performed this poem and I'm like, never again, because I instantly went to silencing myself because it's like, mm. well, you know, I have a great relationship with my parents now and, you know, mm. there are people who deal with worse and do I have a right to feel that way? And instantly silencing myself, like, I don't have the right to say this. And it goes back to when I was young and constantly being silenced. Mm. So I got into poetry because... It was the one space that I could have Mm -hmm. where my words had value. Because I felt for so long, and I still feel sometimes in personal life, and I think everybody in their personal life feels sometimes when they deal with people, whether they're significant others or siblings, parents, authority, you know, that your words don't have value. Right. And so when I go and perform and I step up to the mic and the stage is mine, these are my words, my words have value. Right. And that's how I kind of got into it. So it's it's been a wrap ever since. I love every single second of it. <laughs> you definitely see that throughout the poem, both physically and psychologically. Yeah. You're being told and reinforced the idea that somehow yeah. nothing you were doing was the right thing. <laughs> right. Like, this is all on you. Part of the reason why I'm so elated that, you know, you approached me for this interview is because now it makes me sit in this moment and I have to own this poem. Mm -hmm. Yeah, like, I have to own it now. (laughs) You know, I did it and here it is. I think part of it is, like, at the time, I grew up for, you know, large periods of my life where physical punishment Mm -hmm. was a norm. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And that if I did something 
that wasn't right or that was wrong or that was quote defiant mm-hmm. I would be thanked mostly mm-hmm. at the time just because there were different ideas on how to raise a child right. and that was a norm at the time not saying it was okay Mm-mm. never would I say that that is okay mm-hmm. but that's you know what the norm was at the time mm-hmm. and so there would even be times, because I remember, and we'll get into your poem, where I think you were also saying that physical punishment was used with you. I'm pretty sure we have moments where you had got spanked or whatever, and you're confused as to what happened and what you even did wrong. Well, my poem is a bit different because uh-huh. I don't always write in my own voice. Oh. So my poem is not actually autobiographical. Oh, okay. But obviously it shares a theme with yeah. yours. Okay, so then I will say, I remember growing up, and I'm sure other people who grown up where physical punishment was in the home, that there would be sometimes you'd be punished and not understand why you were being punished. Right. In the sense of, and I say that with the line of what my father saw in my eyes when I was eight, I'll never know. Because yeah. there were so many instances of things happening so fast where I would do something. I don't know what happened, yeah. but then, you know, I'm getting spanked and I'm getting hit and I... I'm confused as to what I even did wrong. And then even after the fact, I still have no idea what happened. Right. So um, it sounds like more like an immediate reaction. There was yeah, no like, yeah. explanation. I'm pretty sure I was getting yelled at as to what I did wrong that resulted <laughs> in the spanking while I was getting the spanking. But you're so like caught up in the pain of the moment and right. it all becomes a Right. I can hardly ever tell you what I was being spanked over. A lot of all the times I've been spanked, just can maybe one or two I can actually tell you, like, this is why, or this is what I was told I was being spanked for. Yeah. It's very tough because then you learn to be absent. Mm. I learned to just not be around. Yeah. Because that was the best way to avoid anything was to just not be there. Mm-hmm. So then your home is not actually home anymore. Yeah, it started to feel that way, especially as I got older and and I would be around my father. And for what it's worth, he loved his kids and he loved his family, but his ideas were just different. And Mm -hmm. they were coming from how he grew up. And so he was passing it on. And, you know, now that I'm older, I'm able to realize it again, not condoning anything, but saying this didn't come from you. This came from before you and it was your norm. And so you grew up thinking it was okay. Yeah. But, but still he was making his decisions for himself, right? Right, yeah. And But what happens to a lot of children and people that I know that talk about it is you learn to be absent. Mm-hmm. And you learn to go away. Yeah, and you learn yeah. to stay away. And so then people will have discussions with their parents. Or I remember having the discussions like, why don't you want to hang out or be around? And it's like, well, what happens when I'm around mm-hmm. is painful. Right. And so now I associate your presence with pain. Right. And I don't want to be around that. Right. And so it is very tough. And it does breed a lot of very negative and toxic ideas about the self. Mm-hmm. It does. Um, and it breeds this sort of self-torturous, mm-hmm. at least it did in me. Yeah. I know. Um, <laughs> of just like anytime something goes wrong in my personal life, mm-hmm. even if I was acting in a way that I try to deal with the situation as best as I can, Mm -hmm. I will always try to find a reason to make it my fault. Mm -hmm. It does spur a lot of things, and it does snowball into effect, and I still have to deal with some of these 
ideas about myself as mm-hmm. an adult. There wasn't a lot of like physical punishment in my teenage years, so that mm-hmm. eventually stopped. But still, like you know, I'm 26 now, and I'm still yeah. dealing with these ideas of self right. that are bred from that environment of who mm-hmm. I am mm-hmm. and what I mean to like the collective. Right. And I think it also always goes back to viewing myself as the problem. Right. And even it goes that way in the second part with my mother. Mm-hmm. Love my mother. My mother is great. She's very nurturing, but she's still a human being and she still would say very cutting things and mm-hmm. very mean things. Mm-hmm. And it goes back to the self-image of like, I'm the problem. Right. And I shouldn't say these things and I shouldn't right. feel these ways. Right. And so now like when we connected together, it made sense to me of just like, after performing this poem, after writing this poem, after saying it, even now as I like talk about it, I feel bad. Like I shouldn't say these things. I shouldn't talk about these things. You have the right to feel how you feel. Right, yeah, but... Have you shown the poem to your parents? No, I'm not ready. (laughs) (laughs) I've had that thought too of like, do we finally have this conversation? Right. I don't know. Maybe I'll have them listen to the podcast when it comes out because that's a nice like buffer. Yeah, <laughs> you know, like yeah. like you, and you get a chance to explain. Yeah, I get a chance to explain how I feel. Yeah. So maybe me coming and doing this is this catalyst of like we're gonna have this conversation now, right, right. and we're gonna have it in a way that I'm comfortable with. Of like, here it is. Mm-hmm. You will hear it, mm-hmm. and here's my explanation, and this is how I feel. Mm-hmm. And now we can have the conversation. But yeah, I, I think about it all the time. I'm like, do I ever talk to them about this? Mm. Yeah, it's a tough decision. It's a, it's a very hard decision, especially with filtering through the self and yeah. finally getting to a point where I'm like, okay, let's have this conversation. When I talk to people about it, I share these thoughts. Everybody's telling me, yeah, it's time to have the conversation. Yeah, it's time to have the conversation. But you're not the one that needs to have it. And so it's so hard because it's like, yeah, I can sit here and wax poetic all day about, like, I'm ready for this conversation. But then I need to go do it. Yeah. Well, and also there is a lot of vulnerability involved. Yeah. Right? Because what if they just reject it? Yeah. And, and that's the whole point because what you experience is that they have exhibited rejection behavior toward you. Yes. So yes, even yes. though you're 26 now mm-hmm. and that was like when you were a third of the age, yeah. you still feel this, you're almost going back to that mm-hmm. point because now you have a better relationship. Yeah. You're kind of risking it. And still, yeah. And I think the best thing for me growing up was like, understanding that my parents are just people mm-hmm. <laughs> um which is hard which is hard yeah when you're like you know when i'm eight nine ten i don't get it you yeah. know when i'm still in my teenage years and the cutting words are happening and my father still very quick i will recognize his growth mm-hmm. um he's a wonderful man and i love him and i recognize his growth so he used to be very quick to anger mm-hmm. all of those things would still happen when i was a teenager when I was a teenager, I realized, like, the, and then comes that challenge of, like, you're just a person. Mm. And so they might get defensive yeah. because they may not be ready to have this conversation with me. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, that's the thing is that with any relationship, sometimes one party is more ready to deal with certain things than the other party. And, yeah. And the person who's willing to deal with those things feel like 
they're having the relationship on their own or they're yeah they're burdened with the responsibility of the entire relationship right exactly and that's very tough and so if i you know have this conversation with my parents that i have to be mindful of is they are people as well and they might get defensive because this is a very loaded sort of thing Right, right so it's very tough to deal with all these things and again going back to the silencing it was just like even now I'll probably still walk away and be like did I have a right to do any of that but I think I, I do have the right I'm coming to be comfortable with right. that I do have the right to talk about these things and I do have the right to share this moment I do have the right to have this discussion because I felt feelings. it yeah and to have these feelings so maybe one day I think it's good that you are seeing uh-huh. a professional who can help you figure out these things yeah, and yeah. who can help you coach out of the habituation of feeling mm-hmm. like somehow you shouldn't have these feelings yeah, or that you have to take on the responsibility of the entire relationship. Uh-huh. And if and when you feel like you want to talk with them, hopefully she yeah. or he can help you prepare for that those conversations. Yeah, because what might happen. Yeah, because yeah. it will be tough no matter what. Even if it's the most positive outcome exactly as you hope it will be, it will uh-huh. still be a painful conversation. Just yeah, to it's going to be very hard. Yeah. <laughs> the one thing that I do appreciate about this problem is it does move in parts. Mm-hmm. And each part is very meaningful to me. Mm-hmm. So as we move into the third part and I start talking about church and mm-hmm. growing up, my family is very religious, very Christian. There's a lot of black people in America are it's Mm -hmm. very ingrained in the culture but it was very interesting growing up my father now is a pastor and he does great things Mm -hmm. within his church within his community with his family it's wonderful and I'm so happy for him and proud of him and my mother's also ordained to preach and stuff and she has her license to preach but it was very tough for those transitional years Mm -hmm. and with the relationship being on the rocks as it was not necessarily on the rocks with my mother because her and I were very close in my teenage years and I think a lot of that was just because my parents were opposites. I'm a lot closer to my mother Mm -hmm. for a long time Mm -hmm. and my mother was seemed to be the only person that could act as a buffer between me and my father to get him to come off of my case even when they had split like my mother was always this like mediary force like you know if she were to get involved he'd kind of back off it was tough because then I found myself running to my mother when my father was being that way but then when my mother was being hurtful I had nowhere to go (laughs) Um, well that's the thing mm -hmm. when you when you are different from both of your parents yeah I mean sometimes children had maybe a frictional relationship with one of them but yeah in your case it's both and in my case as well actually yeah so you end up having to choose between a Mm -hmm. bad and a worse (laughs) I, I wouldn't necessarily say it was like a bad and a worse for me it was just that they were different and so me and my mother we even growing up we had a better relationship because mm-hmm. we were similar right but, but just in that terms closeness of yeah that closeness still came mm. again my parents are people so there were still some things that were said mm-hmm. in ways that were dealt with and my mother doing as much as she can she did breed a lot of you are the problem sort of mentality in me even though she didn't mean to Mm -hmm. and that's one thing that you know I will recognize in my parents is they didn't mean for things to happen this way they didn't mean for me to internalize things this way but kids are sponges yeah (laughs) and so 
growing up, there was just one of those things where, you know, me and my mother, we had a fine relationship and most things ran smoothly most of the time. But when she would say harmful things, they were really intense. Mm -hmm. And because we were so close, I feel like I felt them harder because there wasn't a buffer there. Right. It was just me and her. Right. And so when she would say things to me, it was direct, like very very cutting and yeah when also they're your parents right because they're my parents yeah and as an eight-year-old or even younger those years where you basically are dependent on these yeah. people who birthed you mm -hmm. in whom you have certain expectations that in some ways they didn't live up to your mind is like this is the model i have in my mind this is the expectation uh -huh. but they're doing something else yeah. that's completely different and you really have no choice but to go back to them as a source of physical if not comfort then at least yeah. necessities yeah so then you kind of go back to this I love you because you're providing what I need. Mm -hmm. But then every time I show you my love, you mm -hmm. are hurting me. Yes and no. My childhood is still covered in happy moments and great times and its struggles and stuff. Mm -hmm. I think a lot of that was just their ideas of how to discipline were mm -hmm. where the trouble sort of came in. And I started learning to defend after my parents had divorced, the physical punishment wasn't really a thing anymore. And so mm -hmm. we're, you know, at this point kind of moving into my teenage years, mm -hmm. I would try to say mean things to them. Mm -hmm. And my mother would express how much that hurt her, mm -hmm. but I'm mimicking the behavior that you're giving to me. Right. Yeah. I mean, kids mimic the behavior that, you know, well, we, yeah. that parents give to children. And it goes back to that silencing of children. I don't have any children, but one thing that I've heard is like children will make people look themselves in the face because you, what you're <laughs> giving to them is you're going to get that right back. Right, right. And moving into my teenage years, it was kind of one of those things where I feel like I had to make a choice. And again, I was closer with my mother, so I had to make a choice of like, do I do it with my mother or do I do it with my father? Right, right. Were you, know? you living with your mom? So I lived with my mom for most of my life. Mm -hmm. Then I started living with my dad. Mm -hmm. They were different. Yeah. But because I got so accustomed to my mother, that was like, hey, I'd rather be with my mother. And again, my mother being that mediary force between me and my father. Mm -hmm. I honestly feel that the relationship with my mother, as wonderful as it is, is very complicated in the sense of there were a lot of problems when we would have friction. Mm -hmm. When I would have friction elsewhere, for the most part, we wouldn't have any problems. But when she would have an issue with me, that's when the cutting words would come. Or when I would express that I don't like the way that you treat me to my mother, mm -hmm. I got a lot of those cutting words. Right, right. So it was one of those things where it was just like, okay, again, just don't say anything. You won't have a problem. Just don't right, say anything. Right. When it was with my mother, it was just I won't say anything. When I want a father, I just won't be around. <laughs> yeah. Which is kind of it's kind of tough to have a close relationship with people that uh -huh. you have to always put a buffer zone whether physical or mental, right? Yeah. And, but because there are times where they're obviously supplying what you need both psychologically and sure. physically that you can't help yeah. but be close to them. But mm -hmm. then that also makes you want. Yeah. Again, like really have such love and admiration for my parents, but there's still people and they still damage.
Yeah. But going back to the whole church thing, it was so weird to like going in my teenage years and towards the end of high school when my father finally got ordained a priest and we would still have that sort of frictioning relationship right. to be getting yelled at all week and then Sunday to see you up in the pulpit was very jarring for me. Right, right. And it's like two different people. It was like two different people. And I think that's a part of the poem that I think a lot of people can relate to because I feel that church was that for a lot of people. As somebody who's not really religious now mm -hmm. and definitely not really getting down with the Abrahamic faiths, mm -hmm. Sunday kind of felt like a show. Mm. because there would be times where I would go in church on Sunday and sit away from the family. My father would come up to me and he's like, why don't you sit with the family? And for context, by this time, my father had gotten remarried and they had uh, my youngest sister, who is my world, and she's my absolute everything. I love her. <laughs> he would be like, why don't you sit with the family? And it was weird, because mm. one, I didn't really particularly feel like part of a family, because yeah. every time I come around, you find a reason to yell at me. Yeah. And then two, the truth is, is I don't want... On Sunday, we sit together like we're this family, we're this unit. But during the week, anytime I slip up, even in a minor way, mm -hmm. now you're raising your voice and you're yelling at me. And, you know, I don't feel like part of anything here, you right, know. Right. But so it felt like pretending, right? It felt like pretending. It felt like pretending. And it was very hurtful. Mm to have to experience that. Yeah. Even though he didn't yell at me about it, he's just like, why don't you just sit with the family? But it was hurtful to say, I want you to pretend. Right, well, because he, it's also denying. Again, it's a different form of denying. It is, right? it is. And there would be times he talked to me because when I was in the house, I was very to myself. I would sit in my room and I would draw and play video games and read and not be around. Mm -hmm. And he was he's like, I know you can't wait to get out of here, but at least come around and make it seem like you want to be here. And I was like, you don't give me a reason to want to be here. <laughs> you know, I don't have a reason to want to be around. Okay. Because if I am around, all I do is I sit on the couch and I don't talk to anybody. Right. Because you're afraid that... Because I'm afraid to say anything. Right. You're afraid you might ignite something. Ign exactly. And so it was very hurtful to try to deal with that and then go into church and it felt like Sunday was the one day mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and I know a lot of people can relate to that of Sunday being the one day that they might not have problems because you know that's the Lord's day and when people are at their most showy <laughs> um <laughs> yeah. and it's hard yeah and I know a lot of people within that church that I spoke to that felt the same way about their parents that were in the pulpit. Um, <laughs> and just people in general, even if they're not in the pulpit, just Sunday was the day that mm -hmm. everything was fine. There wouldn't typically yeah. be any issues because it's the Lord's Day and everybody wants to be holy and all that other stuff. But then it made church feel like a performance. Right. And it made church feel like something that I had to do because one thing is, is that I was starting to come out of faith towards the end of high school. Uh -huh. I mean, it was so funny because I was one of the officers in the Christian club on campus sort of thing. <laughs> I forgot what our name was, but I think that was like the last remnants of me trying to hold on to it. Yeah. But I couldn't voice that I was questioning God's existence because yeah. what could be on the other side of that statement? Right. It could be understanding, it could be questions, or it could be aggression. Right. And I wasn't going to take that gamble. 
And I think now that I'm settling into myself as a person, like, yeah, I have all the reasons that I feel for not being of faith. Not to say that I have an issue with it. I think it's beautiful. And if people are of faith and they feel that it works in their life and they generally do well in their lives and it inspires them to do well in their communities, like, cool. I just, the way I see things. But part of that, I'm willing to admit now, is that hurt. Mm-hmm. of growing up and having to perform church. Right, right, which made church seem like a fake thing rather than something where you genuinely right. have faith and there are actions behind that faith, that right. back of that faith. reinforces that like you're like this on sunday (laughs) you were like this on sunday this is sunday you and but monday through saturday you towards me is a different beast right right and i remember growing up that even church culture made children the problem because they always like to throw this scripture out that was kids need to be respectful to their parents that's basically the gist of the scripture but they will never tell you that the immediate like scripture after that that line is about parents not prompting their children to anger by the way that they treat them uh-huh. but that never came up in church right ever right. so it become like a rationalization of right? yeah like of their own behavior of their own behaviors right. of like right. i'm the parent i'm right i'm the head of the household right. i need to be respected and you are the child and Whatever you feel, if I decide that that's not valid, I'm going to tell you that that's not valid. Right. And they're doing so by hiding part of church teachings as well. Oh, So it's only yeah. whatever supported what they believe in. Yes. Supported their yes. continual behavior. That in and of itself is very damaging. Yeah, and I can it, imagine. When you have people like me who I've been described as people both inside and outside the family is very precocious. I question a lot. Mm-hmm. I question why a lot. Right. It can sort of feed into this whole I'm separating myself from church mm. because church in and of itself has had damaging things within it and things that have been told in church have been damaging. Right. And so when you ask a lot of questions of why, it's like, well, why aren't you telling the second half Right. Of that verse. Right. Why right. aren't you expanding on that scripture? Why aren't you putting yourself on the hot seat? Right, exactly. You know, and then it, And that's, you know, that's the difference between like faith and church. Yes. Right? You don't necessarily need church to have faith. I agree. I very much agree. One thing I remember this being a topic of conversation in my home is I used to ask my father why we go to church. <laughs> He's like, well, you can interpret the Bible and you could be wrong. I'm like, but so can anybody in that church, like, <laughs> you know, but I guess if they feel that they are called to do so, then sure. Right. I feel like there is some ego involved in people who say, well, I know better than you what these words mean. Uh-huh. That God speaks to me directly, whereas yeah. I have to be the interpreter of God to you. Which is one thing I will say, and I will shout out my father right now as a pastor. I watched him start putting a sermon together, and what he did that I respected so much is that he has his Bible, Mm -hmm. but he went to the local library Mm -hmm. in his town in Texas, and he got books from different theologians, I think they were? Mm -hmm. Yeah, like... Bible philosophers, yeah, schools of thought, and got their interpretations on what's being said here and kind of pulled all that information together instead of just like, I read this, this is what God is telling me to say. And I've always respected that about him as a pastor because, like, he was like, Oh, I gotta put the sermon together. You go to the library, he's like, Okay, this guy wrote about this, this guy wrote about this, this guy wrote about this. Okay, now I'm gonna go read all of these. 
and see what's being said. I've always respected that. Right, and that also shows me like where you get your precociousness from, right? Because oh, absolutely. Because he obviously is yeah, very curious yeah. as well. Crazy enough, my father used to write poetry. Oh, really? Right, That's yeah. Cool. And so <laughs> I don't know if he does anymore. I, I mm-hmm. hope he does. Right. I, I'll have to ask him so that's me crediting my father's growth and my mother as well like now that I've gotten a little bit older she has recognized some of the things that she has done and and has let me speak and take a moment to fully register what I'm saying and ask questions and all that stuff and not be so quick to like load the guns and shoot back and so I feel like I would be doing my parents a disservice if I didn't recognize their growth and I think you do very Uh well and you have done throughout our conversation it's great that now she's listening to you more yeah Rather than... Both of them are being listened to. Right, which is great. It's good to have that growth. Hopefully it's not just because you're a grown man now that they have (laughs) to recognize that. I hope not. But yeah, yeah, I mean, I, I do feel like, especially when we're younger and we have children and we kind of have this idea that parents know everything not so, so much know everything but because we're older than our kids by necessity that, yeah that we definitely know no. more rather than just be patient and mm-hmm. see where the question is going because kids feel things so raw mm-hmm. because at this point in our lives when i'm experiencing things with you and you do an action towards me i'm filtering it through everything i know about people right. that I've ever learned right with right. children they don't have as much memory right so they're feeling things are wrong and i think that's also part of the reason why children are so often silenced is because what they're feeling is like the first time you act upon them in a certain way that is imprinted in their memory forever yeah and also as children we wanted to understand this world we come in we don't know anything and we're basically experiencing as if we're aliens coming right into a new world and we're trying to learn and question Mm -hmm. is a way of learning Right, because right. if we don't ask, how are we going to know? Mm-hmm. Or how are we going to try to get the answers? Right. So to have that shut down is mm-hmm. kind of painful. It's like, but I'm trying to understand. Uh, yeah, I'm trying to understand. I'm trying to stick up for myself. Right. One thing I will always, always, always stand by this is that I was always really bad and still am to this day bad at speaking up for myself. Mm-hmm. And it always goes back to that when I tried to speak up for myself to my parents, I was silenced. Right. That, was that not needs valued. to happen in the home. Yeah. My voice, I felt, wasn't valued in the home. Right. right. The way I experienced things, for the most part, it wasn't. Mm-hmm. And I really got frustrated because I had a conversation with my mother where she said, I always respected your voice. And it's like, no, you haven't. You don't get to tell me how I experience things. Right, like, right. And so... I take all of these things that happen in the home and I go out in the world and I honestly felt I am now coming into myself as a person at 26. Mm -hmm. Finally, Mm -hmm. getting comfortable with myself as a human being Mm -hmm. at 26. Mm -hmm. Whereas I now am comfortable with speaking up for myself. I have to constantly have those battles of what it was growing up. Right, right. Of being silenced and being punished in physical ways. Parents being quick to be defensive or quick to be aggressive Mm -hmm. and all these other things. And I've had to fight through that. And I came into my early 20s this kind of emotional fireball of like (laughs) not knowing how to properly process things. 
things. Right, right. Because I wasn't really taught to process things. Yeah, that's why I think in our 20s, right, when we're finally able to become independent in some ways that our body's maturing. Yeah, that is part of it as well. Yeah, that we are able to sort of assert ourselves as individuals. And at that point, whatever bad habits that we Mm -hmm. had to learn, we have to unlearn them and it's an incredibly tough process it's like you're starting over in your 20s it really did feel that way because i honestly feel that so much of myself was lost in the teenage years Mm-hmm. especially when I started living with my father and it was a lot of feeling like I constantly have to walk on eggshells and not being around. I wasn't really able to come into my own these years or at least mm-hmm. start to have a path because I like to draw and I like to do art and I didn't really do a lot of experimenting with different things until I was 18, 19, 20 right. because I felt I didn't have the space to do that. Right. And I was so caught up in trying to avoid catastrophe yeah. at all points in my life you're just surviving. That I was just, you know, and I feel bad because I know that there are people who have had it worse. Right. Um, but that's not the point, though. That's true. That's right? true. Let me not go Let me not go back to silencing myself. But I felt like I had lost so many years right. that now I'm finally in my 20s starting to put it together. Right. right. Because, again, it was just like I had to survive. And surviving was being quiet and not being around and kind of keeping to myself and kind of hiding things and kind of putting on a show. So I never was really able to try to piece together who Kenneth is until I was like 22 because I I felt I had lost so much time. And I feel that way now going back and looking at it because I can't tell you the kind of person I was from 15 to 19 Mm -hmm. or 15 to 18 because I was just around. Right. And I was around most of my friends. Maybe if you talk to my friends from high school, they kind of pieced it together. But yeah. I had no self-image ideas. Mm-hmm. You didn't really have time for that. I didn't have time for that. When I was at home, I was by myself. And I was just trying to stay away. Right. And I was trying to keep quiet and not be a problem and be really small. I know how to get small really fast. Mm-hmm. If you fill this room full of people, I would stop talking. Mm-hmm. Like yeah. I know how to get small. Yeah. And so it it was very tough. And I think that this poem did kind of bring a lot of that to light for me. And so now I'm kind of like, after being able to explain, so thank you so much. Um, After being able to explain, I'm able to like kind of piece together. Like, here it is. I'm glad you were able to talk about it. All I have to say about it. (laughs) I'm sure I can find more words. Yeah, no, it's fine. Because it takes a long time to work these things out. And there's so many different parts of it right yeah. that that needs to be worked out and, mm-hmm. and that's why it's important to realize that when we are in the space there are people who are experienced who studied on these yeah. problems who can help us and we should reach out for them yeah and like any relationship if you find a therapist that's not a good fit for you yeah. change the therapist okay you don't have I to stick around i really hope i recommend therapy to people who are able to afford it Mm-hmm. That's the problem. Which is a whole different, you know, yeah. sort of thing. Yeah. So that that poem was it was a lot. <laughs> it yeah. was a lot to do. Yeah, and I'm, so. I'm glad you talked about these things, and I'm glad you brought in the church to have the difference, you know, yeah. in seeing and it's explaining. A lot. And, you know, maybe somebody might listen to this podcast. It might help them. They it might, might relate. Help them out. Yeah.
I chose my poem because obviously it talks about very similar things, so it's more on the physical side. Yeah. So I think the physical side itself has a psychological Oh, absolutely. Right? Absolutely. So mine's called crayons. Green dots, yellow spots, color splashes in my childhood, pink bows and blue ribbons, tattered sashes in my white dress, brown streaks, orange stains, dirty faces and iodine hands, navy blotches, red imprints, painful bruises on my behind, purple circles, black boom marks. I would never fool again, split lips, and swollen cheeks. What will children ever learn? When I was reading it in that last line of like, what will children ever learn? And that kind of struck me of like, what physical punishment teaches kids about themselves, about the world around them. A lot of people end up thinking mine is right. Mm -hmm. Especially males, like mine is right. It's like, because you can physically overpower me, that obviously means that you're the person who is in control. And I mean, it makes kids really obey authority if that's that's not good. Well, let me not say disobeying authority is good. I think a lot of times physical punishment will breed that like, don't question, don't act out, don't do this, don't do that. And it makes people really obedient. Right, but not necessarily obedient in somebody who you can trust. Yes. But rather, more likely than not, somebody Uh you can't trust. Right. Because if they require unquestioning obedience, Yes. how does that reflect back on them, right? Right. You can't even question who they are. You can't question anything about them. Yeah. How afraid they must be about their own character. Mm Mm-hmm. Yes. And then if those people do get into positions of authority. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's like so, so very topical. Right. <laughs> like very <laughs> honestly of just it's really unfortunate because growing up as somebody who received physical punishment for most of my young life and talking to other people who were spanked and hit or whatever as kids the one thing that they'll try to tell you is that like they deserved it and mm. it's really unfortunate because we internalize it we right? internalize that I mean, because you have this mental discrepancy and you're yeah. wondering why and we always want an explanation but when you're not given a reason sometimes the why uh, exists in your mind because i said so and, yeah you know because i'm blank or because of my father because he's a policeman or because whatever right i used to be of that mindset of like i got hit because i deserved it mm-hmm. and then you grow up and you kind of realize that that's not the case right and you see other people do that it's very unfortunate because then you know that they might do that to their children right and kids internalize these things yeah. Because you are shaping their self-image. Right. And as you said, it perpetuates through the generations. And it takes such conscious effort to move away from that model. Yeah. So what inspired you to write that poem? I wrote this poem in the 90s. Really? Yeah. You've been at it for a while. <laughs> well, actually, I stopped for like 20 years. Really? I wrote a lot like in the early to mid-90s. And uh-huh. then I kind of just stopped and not for any specific reason. I think I just got busy trying to make a living or something. Uh, yeah. And I always wrote when I felt compelled to write. Yeah. So 
I guess I also lost that feeling as well. So I didn't mm. come back to writing poetry on a regular basis until like 2016. Really? Yes. This particular poem, I think I wrote it around the same time that Suzanne Vega came out with her song Luca. Okay. Which was about, well, I don't know how autobiographical it is. It's a story about a neighbor uh-huh. kid who was being abused. And that was the time when this started becoming more in the mainstream, more being highlighted, partly because of her song, highlighting child abuse. Yeah. And I write, even then, as I do now, I write personal poems, yes, but I also write poems in reaction to what I read in the news or in reaction yeah. to whatever I um, yeah. hear of other people's experiences. So this particular poem was written from <clears throat> the point of view of a child. Okay. And so yeah. the language is more juvenile and mm-hmm. very simple and goes from stages, obviously. For yeah. you to see this cute little kid and she obviously is dressed well, but then, so there are parts similar to what you said about your own experience where, you know, you were being given certain necessities. Yeah. But other things, more nurturing aspects of the childhood was absolutely missing from this poem. And you realize... Uh-huh. She was being abused. Yeah. And then last line is sort of like, what do people learn from that? Yeah. And I'm actually really glad and I thank you for coming on the podcast because when I wrote this, it was more theoretical. Uh-huh. Because as I said, I didn't really experience the physical aspects. I felt more the psychological ones yeah. that you told me about. Even though this was written in the more theoretical, now that I spoke with you, I feel like because you talked about your experience about how you don't even remember why you were being punished, you just remember the pain so much that the pain itself was all you remember. So there yeah. was like no point. Yeah. The physical punishment had no point except to bring pain. Yeah, I didn't learn anything. Yeah, so, so I felt like <laughs> now we're going back to that line, given what you experienced, because I never liked the ending of this poem. You make me feel good about the ending that I put in my poem. Oh, Thank you. I yeah, appreciate that. Yeah. It was, as I said, it was a hypothetical. And so right. your story, at least, uh-huh. kind of confirmed that hypothesis. Okay, yeah. Thank you. Oh, really well, I'm glad that I can help in such a way. I do. Yeah, I'm sorry you had to go through what you went through <laughs> and relating it to me to, to uh-huh. help me with that. I really do appreciate it. Oh, yeah, yeah, definitely. Because you were saying that, you know, you wrote it hypothetically. Do you feel that as poets that we should and we have a responsibility to tell these stories for people who might not be able to express certain things. I always wonder about that because I've always wanted to write poems that are more like stories, Mm -hmm. but I'm like, is that something I can do? Do I always have to pull from myself? I mean, every poem you write, you pull from yourself. You know, it's how you interpret things and how you lay it down. But I just was kind of curious because I guess for me it was like this whole thing in my head of like you know telling stories as a poet was like back in the days of maybe some medieval times where you had your wandering storytellers or something like that's a <laughs> fantastical idea of like what poetry used to be right. but I, I always wondered about that well I think it's up to the individual poet uh-huh. it's, it's what you feel comfortable writing as you said it always comes out of us because yeah. we are the writer we are the authors of these pieces of work so no matter what if we're telling somebody else's story we are still involved in it no yeah. 
I enjoy writing political poetry, partly because politics, even though they seem like big sky ideas, they do affect our everyday lives. That's true. So when I get very anxious about that, it's a way for me to sort of like uh -huh. thinking out loud by writing yeah. it down. That's how my poetry come out. I don't think you have to. I admire what Barack Obama did with the Affordable Care Act, what yeah. he tried to do with that, even though it kind of got butchered, because he was able to use uh, incredible personal pain of losing his mother uh -huh. through cancer, not getting the care she needed. Yeah. And expand that and be able to sort of help Americans yeah. in general. Yeah. And I think for me, that's what altruism in a way is, mm -hmm. is that to be able to relay your personal pain and broaden that to be able to help everybody else rather than just saying, oh, my pain, my pain, my pain, and that's it. And cannot look beyond it, which is unfortunately a lot of people are doing now. Is like uh -huh. my pain. I don't give a crap about your pain. Yeah. And I think that's what make me admire him and what he tried to accomplish with that. Uh -huh. I have my criticisms of the man. Of course. But you know, As I think should. this is one of the things that I admired about him, and I admire in anyone who is able to take personal pain and try to say, okay, I felt pain. How can I help so that no one else will feel pain? And not necessarily the way I feel pain, but any pain. Yeah. Let me try to eliminate that. Okay. So yeah. I hope that answered your question. Yeah, that did, that did yeah. help a lot. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, so I was just curious. Yeah, and also I think it's your process, right? At this point, you might be in the point in your life where you know you're still processing, obviously, what's going on with you. Yeah. So it it yeah. might help you to just keep going through mm -hmm. that, going over and over again. But uh -huh. it might also help you to go through that process by telling somebody else's story. Mm -hmm. And in that way, it's almost like you have the ability to distance a little bit. And that distance might allow you to see it from a different perspective. And mm -hmm. maybe it might help you to heal. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. But like I said, I think it's up to the individual poet. Yeah. What they want to do. Oh, okay. Like I said, I was just always curious. So I was, eh, you know, and now that I have you, I have your ear. And you had shared that that poem wasn't autobiographical. It's wonderful, by the way. Thank you. Um, I yeah, I, I really did enjoy that read. I really did enjoy that poem. And you know, I'm glad that I was able to make you feel confident in the way that you ended it. Because, yeah, um, I mean, it really does speak true. And I think that's one of the most interesting things about poetry is, like, I never realized how captivating and mm -hmm. relatable poetry is until I did it myself. Because mm -hmm. I would, like, go on YouTube and I would think it was really cool, like, button poetry and all that stuff. And I would still, like, it would resonate with me. But when I did it and you're looking at everybody react to you and stuff like that and you see... People feel like even when I performed this poem at the competition, there were a couple people I looked straight in the eyes and I could mm -hmm. tell that they were feeling it. Yeah. There were some people I was like, oh, you feel this in a similar way that I feel this, which right. means you might have gone through a similar thing that right. I did. Right. Right. Whether it be with physical punishment or cutting words or the whole church experience, which I'm sure there are a lot of poems about it. I'm sure this will not be the last poem I ever write that has to deal with church. Not only is it relatable, but it means something to my every person and I think that's yeah. the rewarding thing about being an artist yes. in general I ask people like if I show them a painting or a poem they're like what does this mean and I was like well what does it mean to you yeah yeah because you there's know? always two aspects of it yeah. right and what it means to us to have produced something a piece of art yes and then 
it's out there and somebody else will see something that's meaningful to them that uh-huh. we might not have seen we might not have thought of when right. we did a certain thing but it speaks to them and it allows people to feel certain things from a different entry point yeah yeah absolutely yeah. and so hearing all of those things especially from other artists and other poets it's really just so interesting to hear like what they have to say about it like, yeah. you know I'm like beaming from ear to ear just talking about it because it's just like now I kind of want to go get back in the lab about it. It's like, oh, well, now that I feel better about this, like what else can I do? Yeah. And all that other stuff. And so, yeah, it's been a a ride with this poem, to say the least. It's, as you can tell when we talk about it, it's been been a roller coaster of feelings and emotions towards this particular poem. Um, Completely understandable for having gone through what you did yeah especially if, since it's still echoing in your yeah, current relationship yeah, yeah, yeah. and because they're your parents i mean i have similar situations when you were saying who's the buffer i'm sort of the opposite i'm still closer to my mom just because yeah. i also lived with her after yeah so i can relate to that aspect i can relate to the dynamics and uh-huh. sometimes you just feel so sad that you can't feel comfortable when you're mm-hmm. with people that you love so much yeah 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 it breaks your heart every time it really it really does yeah. it really does i think the best thing that happened to me and my father's relationship was that i moved out and i started living with my mother again after i graduated high school mm-hmm. i think that distance really helped because he was able to grow mm-hmm. and process his baggage and I think distance really helped me in my mother's relationship yeah. definitely started to improve as I got older and mm-hmm. you know she was able to process her baggage and her stuff and go through all of those things and as we grow we were able to grow together and have beautiful relationships yeah. and again recognizing like me in the relationship that I have with my parents is we're in great places now but I still have these things that I have to deal with yeah. and these internalized thoughts that I have to process. Yeah. Good thing that you have a therapist to go to, yeah. but in terms of your relationship with them, unfortunately, in yeah. this aspect, you're still alone because you can't talk with them about it. Yeah, Yeah. not yet. I, I honestly don't know if I will be ready anytime soon, and maybe that's okay. I think that... Yeah, I think, again, it's up to you. It's yeah. like how comfortable you are, and mm-hmm. it's understandable feeling either way. Yeah. And the thing is, is because of that, I've invited my mother to one of the poetry readings. I did it at the top of the year at First Friday and I hadn't invited her in. I didn't tell her I did that competition and I didn't tell her that I did this podcast or no, I told her I had a poetry competition. Mm -hmm. I didn't record anything. Because I knew this was coming. I told my father I had a poetry competition. I didn't record anything. I didn't tell him that I did this podcast. (laughs) (laughs) So I was just like, oh, yeah, you know, this is really cool. I told my friend about it. And so that's really cool. So I am sharing it with people. And I am owning myself. And I'm finally actually calling myself a poet in some sorts as I get comfortable with it, which is so weird. Did you ever struggle with that? Mm -hmm. I just wanted to know because as I'm starting out, I say I do poetry but I started recently saying that I am a poet. Did you ever, like, struggle with that? For me, no. Really? Yeah, for me, I was just like, I write poetry. I'm a oh. poet. Oh, <laughs> and okay. sort of, like, 
Ergo, I'm therefore. I'm so jealous. I am so yeah. jealous. I have a friend up in Canada, and she is an artist by trade, and she's like, you are what you do. She's like, you're yeah. an artist. Say yeah. that you're an artist. You but do I, art. Oh, yeah. But I think I've spoken with a lot of poets who feels that, and partly it's because of the, the idea of poetry is all this, oh, you have to have done all of these things in order yeah. to call yourself a poet thing, which to me is unfair because poetry in olden days and throughout history has been a mode of self-expression that people often use and given the diversity of people who <coughs> use it and the range of expressions ways that it can be used to express or ways that it is being expressed i think anybody who writes poetry can call themselves and be legitimately be considered a poet yeah maybe you're not a Pulitzer winning poet but right. if this is your predominant way of expressing yourself, you feel comfortable calling you a poet, again, it's up to you. Uh-huh. I think it's an individual thing. You let people know how comfortable you are with that nomenclature. Okay, yeah. I do want to know, before we close, one is where do you normally read? Where are you? Um, typically anywhere that there's a masters of poetry thing and there is Susan you will probably also find Kenneth there just because I'm still kind of getting comfortable with it Mm -hmm. and just because the crowd that comes to that are people I'm very familiar with I'm gonna try to start branching out more Mm -hmm. and just be a little more plugged in and I think a lot of that is just me becoming comfortable now yeah and getting comfortable with it. Right. The second question yes. I have is, where do people follow you? Do you use social media? Yes. I think, really, I'm going to start putting more of like my poetry on my, my Instagram. Mm-hmm. So that will be where you can find me. Okay. I'm about to change my Instagram handle. Um, <laughs> so you give it to me when you change it. Yeah. Okay, cool. Because it's... Fine. Again, with me naming things, like I made my Instagram like eons ago, mm-hmm. right? And I had the name, and I was like, "Man, I'm glad that I got this handle." But now I'm like, "I'm going to change it to something else that's more." You can make a different account. That way, you can still have both. Oh my gosh, you right. are super correct. Okay. There's an event happening tonight where uh-huh. this woman has like three different Instagram accounts. Jeez. I was like, "Woman, where do you find the time?" Okay. <laughs> but that's an option. Thank you so much. I really appreciate you coming on to the show and being open with me about this very tough subject. Uh, <laughs> I'm glad, you know, we're ending up in smiles and I think that's yeah. important that we get to talk about it and feel like there's I'm a safe space. I'm glad that you provided me this opportunity. It's a weird, like, cementing of self moment. Like, cool. I feel so many positive things right now. I just, yeah. They won't be able to see it, but I've probably been smiling for like the past three minutes straight. So it's they like... can hear it. Believe me, you can you can hear you can hear people smiling on the podcast. Um, so yeah, this was really big. So thank you so much for reaching out. I'm glad we were able to make this work. Me too. You can follow Kenneth at Earth underscore number two underscore Kenneth. That's K E N N E T H on Instagram. Again, that's earth underscore the number two underscore Kenneth, K 
K-E-N-N-E-T-H. As always, you can follow us at poetsandmuses.com and social media on Instagram, Twitter, as well as SoundCloud under Poets and Muses. You can also sign up for our weekly newsletter either at poetsandmuses.com or at the upper right-hand side of the Poets and Muses SoundCloud page. I'm your host, Imogen A-Rate. Thank you very much for listening. I hope you have a wonderful week, and I look forward to bringing you another episode next Sunday.